Yeah. Well, I did, but I'll explain that later. Here we go. You're on. And we're at 113. Here we go. Semek. It's a thorn to grab, heat to protect. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evil do evildoers, that I may be may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the world you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear. Of you, I stand in awe of your laws. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm assuming today is the 24th. Is it the 25th? 25th, okay. All right. Well, that's right, because Sunday's the 28th, and you subtract 3, and you come to 25. Well, I should have figured that one out, but... I have an easier way to it. I don't. Tomorrow's the 26th, which uh, well, is... I, well, I was going to make a comment about that, but I'm not going to do it yet. Um, okay, it we is. have um, we have August twenty fifth. It was a meeting he never forgot. Okay, Asahel Nettleton was a young farmer born in Killingworth, Connecticut, in seventeen eighty three. His contentment with his life was shaken when he heard a sermon on regeneration that awakened him to his need for repentance. He thought of himself as a good person and was having difficulty of, uh, yeah, feeling guilty for his sin. I tried to repent, but I could not feel the least sorrow for my innumerable sins. Um, does anybody know what the word repent means? Change your mind. To change your mind. Okay, so uh, they take this word and they, they use it incorrectly. And all that does is it sets up problems in people's lives like this right here. If people would get the word repentance right, they wouldn't be so concerned about it until after salvation. And here they are, once again, putting the cart in front of the horse. So I'm reading this, but please keep that in mind as I'm reading it. Um, I could not feel the least sorrow from my innumerable sins. By endeavoring to repent, I saw my heart still remain in tenant. Over a period of 10 months, he wrestled with God daily, praying, crying, and feeling hopeless as he began to wonder if he was not one of the elect because his heart was so hard toward God. Okay. He's obviously knows that God is there and he needs Jesus, right? Or he wouldn't be, what is it? Praying, crying, and feeling hopeless. He wouldn't be doing... I'm not going to read this commentary because it's so poor from the beginning. Right. Okay, people... People if need to understand crying, the, they what? If he's crying. He knows that right. Jesus is out there. The whole thing is just Calvinistic type of, yes. Yeah. He has to do something yeah. in order to be, to saved. be saved. Christ did it, everything. Stop. He just has to believe. And this is the problem. I, I just get so angry when I read stuff like that. Somebody sent me a, a, a thing on doctrine for some ministry I you know whatever I don't I don't think it's a church so much as just kind of a ministry and he had all these great points except point 13 and point 14 where point 13 talked about baptism and repentance totally unnecessary to put that in there okay and then point 14 was all about repentance and once again if you understand what the word repentance means it means to change your mind okay if you have never been told the gospel of Jesus Christ before. You've never been told it. 
what do you have to repent of? You might have to repent of your idea about God. I'm a Muslim and I know that's wrong and now I need to repent of that thinking and come to Christ. But they turn repentance into, I need to do this about my sin. Christ forgives you and then you live for Christ. You don't stop your sin before you're saved. That's the whole problem because if you had to do that, then you would need to work in order to be saved and it wouldn't be about Jesus, it would be about you. So it's very, very annoying to read things like that when things have got things, when people have got things going properly in a statement of faith or in their, their pulpit commentary or whatever. And the next thing you know is they introduce something like that. It's the standard Ray Comfort approach. Give them the gospel, tell them how to be saved, and then tell them you need to repent, but not to change your mind repent, but you need to turn away from your sins before you're saved. And all of a sudden, people have this wall up and they walk away and say, how am I going to do that? Jesus will save them and then he will work with you for you to give up your sins. That is the premise of the Bible, is that you believe you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then you say, I'm so thankful for what Christ has done. I will now live for Jesus and I'm going to give up on all these sins, which isn't the word repent at all anyway. But, okay. I can see why people would think that because you know how it is. You get sick. Oh, yeah. And you make sure you're completely well. Well, before you, you go, go to, to the, the doctor. doctor. That's exactly, that's, that. everybody does no, that. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, the whole thing is just, okay, so I'm sorry. I, I'm upset already at the beginning of the class because of a, a very poor commentary. Um, when you read these things, always remember that this, even though it's a good daily thing, it does have a bias towards Reformed theology, and they have got things in their head that do not belong in Scripture. So, um, we'll go on. Harold has a two-bedroom furnished rental in Northport, Florida, just south of here, not very far at all. It's a double-wide, uh, and it's a deed-restricted community. It's a 55-plus community, and unfortunately for me, I would never go there because no pet. But um, uh, it, it's uh, right down there. If anybody's thinking of moving to Florida, you're over 55, and you uh, want um, $1,800 with cable, TV, and Internet, but the other bills you have to pay. So um, if you, he says it's a nice place, and he would like a Christian to uh, be interested in it. So I said I'd tell people about it, and I am telling them right now. Okay, um, Greg and Kim's son is uh, 40 years old. He has COVID very badly. Also, the eight-year-old granddaughter had a really bad stomach bug over the past 24 hours, and uh, so we, we want to keep them in prayer. And then, um, uh, before I go on, I want to ask who sent me this shirt, because it's very nice. It says, one is greater than the 99, and Luke 15, 4. Jesus went out into the fields looking for the one. He left the others in the, uh, the wilderness, okay? Who sent me this shirt? because it came without anything. Just came in a, a bag with nothing from, I think, Amazon or something. So whoever sent that, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and then one more thing uh, also. Um, actually, two more things. One of them is that um, last week we had pizza. And I forgot, as I always do, I had it in my mind during a thought during the Bible study and said, I'll remember that at the end of the class. And of course, I completely downloaded it. But um, some people gave some money for the pizza, okay, in the past. And we had almost used all of it, but I want to thank again Steve Haggard and uh, Maya and um, Melissa Morales and Wins. They all gave in the past, and we used most of that, but there was still some left. And then Marie Whitford also gave us some money after that, and it was almost enough to cover the entire pizza party we had last week. So I want to thank all of those people 
very much for having uh, bought us pizza uh, on my birthday. It meant a lot to me. And uh, so thank you. And Tom Alley's birthday as well. We got something special for him because he's uh, pizza and him don't agree with a certain condition that he has that uh, it's better for him to eat salad. So we, I went out and I mowed the lawn and I picked up all the clippings and I put some sauce on it and yeah, he got that. Did. Yeah. Uh, so thank those people. Well and then we have something uh, kind of special going on in the next uh, 24 hours is we have Rhoda's birthday. Okay. It's her birthday, but it happens to also be Jim's birthday. So we have two birthdays, and then it was also up until eight years ago, Paul's birthday. But Paul, uh, uh, I think wow. it's been about eight years, yeah. Uh, may, maybe nine, but I think it was eight. And uh, so we miss Paul still very much, but we always used to go out and have a dinner, the three of us, plus spouses and, uh, you know, dogs and stuff, and we'd all go out and have a big uh, dinner. We can't this week because we couldn't get anything together with Rhoda and Jim because Rhoda is uh, doing something for the next couple days. So we'll do something next week. Hedico will talk to Linda. And well, we got to if because Linda's birthday is coming up as well. Mm -hmm. So there you go with that. So those are some things. And then I have one more thing as an introduction. Um, uh, we uh, were sent by Lee and Maya a movie. And I don't think I mentioned this last week. It was a Steve Martin movie. Yeah, and did I, I, I mentioned, but I hadn't watched it yet. Did no, I, did I mention? Okay, I didn't think so. Okay, yeah. um, Leap of Faith by Steve Martin. And I watched that and it kind of did the same thing to me as the movie The Apostle. Not as much. Um, Mom gave me the movie The Apostle by Robert Duvall some years ago. And when she gave it to me, I was expecting, you know, here I, I'm preaching and I'm, uh, actually I wasn't preaching at the time, but I, I had been ordained and I was uh, uh, preaching out at Grace, but I wasn't, you know, in the church or anything. I preached at Grace and I had Bible studies and, and I'm thinking this is going to be a great movie about Christianity and how, how uh, it's, uh, you know, this great preacher and blah, 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 blah. And I, when I got done with the movie The Apostle, I was so angry at mom. I, I literally was angry. I thought I, I almost picked up the phone and said, why would you send me a movie like that? But I went to bed and the next day I went to bed and I kept thinking about this movie. Robert Duvall. I kept thinking about it. The point was not great doctrine. This was a guy that was a preacher that did not have good doctrine. And I'm thinking mom wants me to see something with doctrine. And why is she doing this? And so I, uh, I, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. But the whole point of the movie was here was one of the most damaged people on the planet, a preacher who loved Jesus more than he loved anything else. And he made every mistake as a preacher that he could make. And I'm talking about even bad things outside of the being a preacher, things he did with, you know, just not good things. And I, I started to think about it and I kept thinking, that's me. My heart is just like his, I love Jesus more than anything, and yet the things I think, the things I do when people aren't around, I just, I, I, and after thinking it through and realizing what an actually wonderful movie it is, I have watched that movie before every significant thing that I've done since being ordained. I actually watched it before I was ordained. I watched it before I went around the States. I watched it before we started this church. I've watched it every time I needed to just be reminded of the priority. Doctrine is important, and you know I believe that is one of the most important things that we can have, but doctrine in itself is not a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
the relationship is what's important. And from there, you want to pursue Christ. You want to give up your sins. You want to have right doctrine. You want to feel bad when people are being led down a wrong avenue because of their bad doctrine. All those things are important. But if you don't have a heart for the Lord, you can be the greatest professor in a seminary in the history of the world and be as far from Jesus as the worst of sinners on this planet. And I, I love the movie The Apostle because of that. Well, Steve Martin, I was sitting there watching this movie and I started to get the same bad feeling. I, here's this guy that is openly deceiving people yeah. and he had no shame about it. Yeah. He was openly, you've seen it, yeah. openly deceiving people. By the end of the movie, I was so excited. Look, my hair standing up. It was, what happened, it, it, it's a funny movie, but the reason why I was so angry wasn't at the movie. I was angry at real people in the pulpit and in the ministry, evangelists that we see on Christian TV all the time, and he's emulating them. The things they do, he takes off his coat and he hits people. Well, if you know who I'm talking about that does that, and they, they get slayed in the spirit and all that stupid stuff, okay? And I, I was literally angry that there are people that say they're leading people to Jesus and they have no love at all for the Lord or for anything except money. And yeah. so that's what I was angry about. I was just fuming over there are real people that have this attitude in the world. But the movie itself is really good. It's got a couple bad words, I think, maybe not bad words, but, but coarse words, of course. But it was very well done. And uh, I think it should have been a bigger hit than it was. But anyway, um, I do recommend it, Leap of Faith, and especially The Apostle. If you want to just see somebody that loves Jesus with all their heart and soul, watch The Apostle. And that, that reminds me when I need it. So did Steve? Steve Martin. Did he, did he come to Jesus I'm at not the end? saying the end. I'm not giving up the end. But at the end, you're, you're much happier than you uh, are during the movie stewing about somebody that's literally emulating real people in the world today that you know their names, you know their, their false practices, and you know that they're making millions and millions and millions of dollars off of people that are being deceived. I'll tell you, we would stop the movie. What's that? It's called Leap of Faith. I'll give it to you and you can play it. I, we would stop the movie from time to time and talk about it. And one of the things that I said, I was on my way to Israel. And you can see this in the movie. This is why we brought this up, is I was on my way to Israel with mom in 2003. And there were a couple of people there, the finest clothes. She must have had a $3,000 sweater around her thing. She had these diamond watches and everything. She opened her suitcase and everything was laid perfectly. They were very wealthy people, okay? They knew the Lord. They wanted to visit Israel, but they were very wealthy. And she started talking about their experience at a Benny Hinn crusade or whatever you call it, okay? and. Right next to her, she said, he and her, she and her husband were sitting there. She said, right next to him, somebody, I know that it's true. I know that they're real because the person next to us started to have a, like a seizure. And he's, uh, and she started to call somebody and somebody came out of nowhere and said, it's okay. The spirit's taking control of him. And, and uh, so wow. he's going to be, a, wow. the whole thing was a setup yeah. to get their money. And she, I saw this, I'm just talking to her for 10 minutes at the airport or wherever we were, and I could see, can't you see what's going on? Well, that's what they did in the movie, is they would set people up exactly like that. And so we stopped the movie and talked about things like that, but you need to have discernment. You need to step back and say, is this person 
properly handling the word? Is this person doing what he should be doing as a human being to lead others to Christ? Or is he somehow gearing his life towards profit, towards fame, towards you know impressing other people? If that's what he's doing, have discernment. Because there are people out there like this that just are they're sharks and they don't care at all about the Lord. They care about how they can profit off of other people. Okay. I think uh, that's a good warning, but I think it's also just good for us to be reminded. Oh yeah, that, that's watch those movies. Yeah, but our lives we are a testimony of what God has done in our lives and, and those need to be warnings to us that, yeah. of how am I portraying That's God exactly is, right. Am I, am I cheapening him by continuing in my sin or am I going the other way and and making it such a show yep. that I am that I'm turning others off to it because it is nothing but Right pomp and circumstance and look at me not look at the savior that's right right that's right so we need that we need to uh, uh, just evaluate our own selves before the Lord we need to make sure that what we are doing is proper and we are not being deceived by people that have an agenda okay having said that I got an opportunity a job opportunity where was this um, uh, Coral Springs. You ever been to Coral Springs? I have. Nice, I've been isn't there for it? A while. Yeah. They they are paying because my license. I have the licenses that are required for this job, and they are paying eighty thousand dollars a year. So this will be my last Bible class. I'm going back to wastewater. <laughs> anyway, actually, I wouldn't trade this job for four hundred thousand dollars a year. Maybe four hundred ten. But anyway, um, uh, I just I got that, and I can't believe. Coming for you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I can't believe how much they are paying people in the wow. wastewater field now. When I left there, I was the highest paid person because I ran the company and I had a car, uh, a, a car given to me to use, and I didn't make that much. I am no. So you know I got to tell you, they're, they're really, what's that? You know what's in Coral Springs, right? I have no idea. That high school that got shot up. Oh, yeah, okay, that's the place. Okay, we are in um, uh, the book of Colossians. I'm sorry about such a long introduction, but uh, the movies I really wanted to speak about that. Oh, we got to open in prayer. Yes. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And Lord, uh, I would ask that uh, people would be given uh, a uh, sense of discernment in this world, to be able to identify people that have an agenda that is not geared towards you and your word and to understand that there are people out there that even seem sincere that are not. And so help us not to be duped by people like that. Help us to focus on you and your word and to uh, have right doctrine, to have right teaching, but at the same time to also have our heart totally de dedicated to you. And when we fall away from that precept, don't give us a moment of rest until we return to pursuing you above all else. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the lessons that we have in this life about him and the goodness that he has shared with us so that we can just be on fire for him in our hearts and in our souls all our days. And we ask that you bless this class, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, yeah, uh, Robert Duvall did an outstanding job of that movie. It, he did an outstanding job of it uh, simply because he understood what the most important point of a life of faith is, okay? And that is Jesus first, okay? Now, whether he's saved or not, I don't know. But he portrayed properly a person that is...
totally sold out to Jesus despite all of his faults and despite all of the baggage that he had in his life. And uh, uh, I just, I'm, I'm so thankful for that movie in my life and my mom uh, seeing beyond my whatever to understand that I, uh, I needed to have that. Um, okay, we are in Colossians 1 verse 23. I'll start on 21 paragraph. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 23. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, um, this is the verse that Sergio's been waiting to know, analyze, and it's not just from yet last week. He will often email me about verses, and he'll say, I'll say, well, you can read my commentary, or you can wait, and we'll do it in class, and he's been nagging me about this, and then he couldn't be here this evening. So, um, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which i paul became a minister okay so um uh, i'm sure that my analysis is not going to be sufficient here i can just uh, i can't remember what i said but uh, it's not going to be sufficient to what i'm thinking about in my mind right now and that's too bad but uh, this is what you get for right now. Uh, there is a lot going on in the first two words of this verse. It says, if indeed. On the surface, it seems as if what he has said in the previous verse about being reconciled and thus presented holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight is conditional. And a lot of people ask about this. Well, it says, if indeed, you know, your salvation isn't assured. And that's what it sounds like at first. However, the word if conveys a supposition hardly hypothetical. If as I presume, if as I trust, is Paul's intent. St. Paul cannot refrain from, from uh, hang on a sec here. Um, uh, yes, uh, St. Paul, I'm reading Charles Ellicott right now. Uh, St. Paul cannot refrain from needing, from needful warning, but I better read this whole thing again. I'm just, his English is old and you read differently than what you're looking at and so I'm gonna slow down. If as I presume, if as I trust, St. Paul cannot refrain from needful warning, be he uh, refuses to anticipate failure. Okay, that's Charles Ellicott. The word translated as if is noted as a word where the assumption may only be portrayed as valid. Okay, that helps word studies. Stated even more directly, the expositor's New Testament says that it expresses the apostles' confidence that the condition will be fulfilled. So when we have the word if in the English language, it doesn't mean what they're trying to translate in this verse. And so you need to understand what the word actually means. I'll read that again. Okay, this is the expositor's New Testament. It says that it expresses the apostles' confidence that the condition will be fulfilled. So, once again, now we can go back to Ellicott and we can understand what he was saying. If as I presume, or if as I trust, he's saying, if as I trust, saying that it will happen, okay? 
So uh, this abiding in faith is the only way. As uh, it, this abiding in faith is the only, as it is sh the sure way to this presentation of themselves. Okay, this is directed against the false teachers' assurance that the gospel they had heard needed to be supplemented if they wished to attain salvation. Once again, that's the Expositor's New Testament, and it's a little bit confusing, but they're saying, I'll read it again. This is directed against the false teacher's assurance that the gospel they had heard needed to be supplemented if they wished to attain salvation. In other words, what appears doubtful in the English is actually a statement of certainty in Paul's mind. He's not doubting anything. He's saying it certainly. The same construction of if indeed is found in Ephesians 3.2 and 4.21. In both instances, Paul is stating a fact, not something to be doubted. He would not use the grammatical construction as he has unless he was making a point of certainty. Okay, let me take you to those two so you can see what he's talking about. Ephesians 3.2, we'll go there first. So it, just so you know, when you read something and it seems dubious, it's because you're not understanding the intent of the translators. And it's not always easy to do that. That's why we have classes and that's why we have study. And that's why we hold on to these things. But three, uh, read 3, 1 and 3, 2. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So he knows that they've heard it. And so he's saying, if indeed, as it is a certainty that they have heard it. Okay, same construction. Sense in that sense you have heard? You could say sense. That might, that might supply. But they're using the word if indeed simply to match the Greek. Okay, but you have to understand what's going on. So since sounds about right. Since you have. Okay, uh, but as uh, Ellicott said, he's trying to uh, say it like in an emphatic way. So if I presume or if I trust. Since wouldn't quite meet that level but it does. I mean, it, it, it conveys the idea. And so since is, I think, a fine translation. Okay, 421, this is Ephesians 421, and I'll have to go back so that we get the context here, but verse 20. But if you have not, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So he's making an affirmative statement, but the way that it reads in the English gives people doubt. And all they do is they stick with their Bible translation and they say, see, you don't know if you're saved or not. And you don't have the assurance of salvation and all or that. Or that you lose it. Or that you could lose it or anything like that. Okay, that is incorrect. You have to understand what is being conveyed in order to understand the intent of the verse. Okay, so 3.2 and 4.21 of Ephesians has the same grammatical construction. All right, taking the words now in this light, they can continue to be properly evaluated. He says, if indeed, but it's a certainty, you continue in the faith, since you continue in the faith. Okay, we'll make it short, but that's not quite. It's almost there, but it's it's a statement. Well, doesn't of, read that way, but how does yours read? If. Also. Okay, oh, there you go. But, but a lot of ifs are senses. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. So you have to understand what Paul is conveying. Because if you just stick with a translation and you don't know what's actually... You know, we go through this... Uh, you see this every day because you read the uh, Acts still, don't you? The Acts commentary? Oh, yeah. Okay, so every day... I will go through and the New King James Version, which follows the King Jimmy Version. Um, 
uh, will have the the verb is just as a past tense. When it's not, it might be a present participle or it might be a aorist participle. And so you have to a, a more fuller translation to really understand what what is being said. And so when I do that, sometimes I actually completely just say we're going to ignore the New King James version of this verse because it's so poorly translated in the the, ver the verbs that you can't get a sense of what's being said. Luke will be writing in the book of Acts, and he will be actually drawing you right into the account because he's using participles, okay? And when he does that, it's it's bringing you, like you're moving. It's like you're participating in what's going on. And it's exciting. When you read some versions of the Bible, it's not exciting. It just says, well, he did this, and he did this, and you don't get the sense of it. And so when you are evaluating the book of Acts, if you really want to be excited, you need to have a translation which will actually convey the participles as they're rent. The Berean Literal Bible, I think, is the one that's probably closest in this regard that is a modern translation. Young's is very good, but it's hard to read because it's an older translation, and it's very literal, so it gets cumbersome. But um, right now I'm typing the part where Peter is having the, um, uh, the object that looks like a sheet coming down from heaven, okay? I've been in that for the past uh, a couple days, and I did another one this morning evaluating that. And if you read the New King James Version or the King James Version, it's almost dry. But when you read it with the proper rendering of the verbs, it is so exciting, you know? And it, he, he's standing there, and the way it says, behold, heaven is open. It's not like, oh, heaven opened for me. It, it, it's great. And the symbolism there is absolutely marvelous. The word sheet, it says it looks like a sheet. Do you know what that word actually is conveying? It can be a sheet or something else in particular. Uh, do you know what the word is? Okay, it's a sail, okay? That's what makes all the difference. And actually the Weymouth New Testament translated it as a sail because it's got four corners. Sails have four corners. They have, you know, things that hold it, which it's bound. It's it's an object like a sail. It doesn't say it's a sail, but it's like a sail. Now, why is that important? It's because Peter in Acts 11 explains this to us, okay, right? He recounts what he saw in Acts chapter 10. What did Peter do for a living? He was a fisherman. So he's saying it was like a sail. He knew what a sail was, okay? A sheet does not give the symbolism that you need to understand what's being conveyed. It has four corners. What is that conveying? All these things are in it. What is it telling us? It's a very exciting passage, okay? But with the wrong verbs or the wrong tenses of the verbs, you just don't get it. it, it it's just not exciting. And when it's mistranslated as sheet, when it should really be a sail, you miss out what is being conveyed, and it's really a beautiful passage. So, put fitted sheet in there. the what? Please put fitted. fitted sheet in there. Put what in there? A fitted, fitted sheet. sheet that goes on the bottom around the mattress. The fitted sheet. Oh, a fitted sheet. Yeah, well, it doesn't have things that are. Uh, uh, fitted sheet does. Okay, thank you. Uh, it it uh, fitted sheet doesn't have things that are holding the end. You just fit it in and put it in there. Okay, so there, something is being described there that's very particular, and it is a sail. So when you read that again in Acts chapter 10, go home and read it tonight and just think to yourself a sail, and then think of all the imagery. It's very exciting. Okay, anyway, um, now that you know that, um, uh, let's see here. If indeed many translations say, uh, oh, I better go back here. Um, taking the words now in this light, they can continue to properly be evaluated. He says, if indeed meaning certainly you do, continue in the faith, 
and many translations say in your faith. And this is what Vincent's Word Studies argues for. Instead of in the faith, it's in your faith. Uh, he says, the faith is not the gospel system, but the Colossians' faith in Christ. Your faith would be better. So not the faith, but your faith. And so Paul is arguing that the Colossians have a hope which is grounded in their faith, not in some external thing that must be applied to or added to their faith. He next, and once again, we'll take it right back to what we were talking about that got me so upset right here. They're putting something else into your faith in this book when they start adding in all that stuff that does not believe in there. And um, uh, we want to make sure that's done. Okay, so you don't want to do that. You were told the gospel. You were given the message. You believe the message. And Ephesians says explicitly in about four other places in the Bible, explicitly, when you believe, you receive. You were granted the Holy Spirit of promise. That's all that it takes. It takes you believing the gospel. All that other baggage that they threw in there or that people throw into their gospel presentation, uh, Ray Comfort, he gets people right to the edge and then he says, and now you need to. And all of a sudden you can see the people just go, you're damaging them. It's the faith. Well, I mean, I don't think that's his intent, but he's, he's wrong in his analysis, okay? And it, there are people that are controlling in that way, but I don't think that's Ray Comfort's intent. He just is wrong in what he's telling them, and it puts up this wall. So understanding that, we'll read it again. It says, um, uh, where was that? Uh, the grounding is in what the faith is direct. Oh, I better go back. And so Paul is arguing that the Colossians have a hope which is grounded in their faith, not in some external thing that must be applied to, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do that, or added to their faith. It is faith that opens the doorway to heaven. Nothing else can do it. If you are worrying about you need to do this or you need to do that in order to be right with God, you are not right with God and you're not going to be right with God. Um, somebody does Everybody here know who J.P. Sears is? He's a guy who's got red hair, long hair, and he does these great videos on YouTube and he's had a giant epiphany over the past six or seven, maybe three years, probably three years, we'll say. He had this uh, YouTube channel where it was ultra spirituality, and he just did funny things, you know, just it, like how people are ultra spiritual in the world. And he's not a Christian, don't get me wrong, but um, uh, he, he would just do these, you know, he'd fake a Buddhist thing, or he'd fake this, and he's just trying to pick on people. And all of a sudden, his videos really started to change two years ago, if you know what's going on two years ago, okay? And he, he started to wake up to the world around him, that there is a real agenda against the people of this world and there are people being harmed, okay? So he does these videos and he does it in comedy like the Babylon Bee, so they can't ban him. They've tried to ban him several times, but it's comedy, listed as comedy. So they have to give him license because it's comedy. Well, he sat down, somebody sent me a video to today of him and uh, he, she said, well, you know, he, he might be coming to Christ because, and it was exactly the opposite. And I told her this, I, I responded by the email. I was listening to it while I was cleaning the bathrooms and he, he's talking about evil in the world and he's highlighting the evil that we've seen in the past two years and he's very clued into it. 
And he's saying that you need to have discernment against this evil. And he talked about God, about God. And he even quoted, somebody obviously sent him a, uh, a verse from the Bible. And he said it twice. He said, uh, even Satan presents himself as a minister of light. Okay, so he understands that there is uh, deception in the world and that a deceiver is not going to come out and say, we're here to harm you. They're going to come out and they're going to say, we're here to help you. And they're going to be sly enough about it. But the whole time he was doing this, he was talking about it from a rational-minded person. He kept saying, God, if you understand evil, then you can work against the evil in the world. It was totally a works to works-based concept. Everything he said, he said, trust your heart. I, Bert sent me something one time and he said, uh, I think we were quoting uh, that guy. Um, anyway, I don't remember who it was. Uh, he's done some, uh, he wrote the book, um, uh, The Nations, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. John Piper. John Piper. Yeah. And uh, I think it was him you were quoting. And uh, I said, he is wrong about this. I said, do not ever trust your heart. And I quoted Jeremiah, where it says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, and then you send out a correction. I want to make sure that you people know not to listen to that, that part of that commentary. And it wasn't your commentary, it was his. And um, so anyway, he's saying, this is this guy, J.P. Sears, he's saying, trust your heart, do this and do that. And in other words, works. Just what is being conveyed by Paul right here, you don't need. That's what this guy is saying. And so I went back to her and she had said, you know, he needs prayer because maybe he's becoming a Christian. He is his own worst enemy at this point because he thinks that he can identify evil. And you can't unless you're in Christ. It is impossible. And it's not just God in general. He says, if God is on your side, you know, you're the winner. God is going to take over. But he has not included the one key element, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Because Muslims think that God is on their side. Yep. Buddhists think that God is on their side. People all over the world are claiming Glenn Beck thinks that God is on his side. And he spoke a lot like Glenn Beck in a couple of his sentences. Glenn Beck is a Mormon. He has not perceived the truth of Jesus Christ. Okay? There is no evidence that he has ever received Christ of the Bible. He's received Christ of Mormonism. And what does it say in Galatians 1, 6 through 8? If anyone, even an angel from heaven, which is what Joseph Smith claimed presents any other gospel, let him be accursed, anathema, okay? There is only one way to be right with God and to have clarity of thinking. And even when you come to Christ, most people don't have clarity of thinking because they have, they've made the belief part, but they have not now set aside the mental part. And the mental part is important, and that's why we have these classes, and that's why I was so mad when mom gave me the apostle, because that guy was not using the mental part at all. He was just using the passionate part, okay? But you have to have the passion before you have the mental. He's put the mental first, and he has eliminated his need for Jesus. So that, he needs prayer because he, he has a right understanding of what's going on in some way, but by thinking he's clued into what is right when he hasn't, he's missing the whole ball, which is Jesus. That guy needs Jesus. So anyway, um, and this is what Paul is kind of conveying to us right here. So I'm going to read that again. And so Paul is arguing that the Colossians, Colossians have a hope which is grounded in their faith. It must be faith before anything else, not in some external thing that must be applied to or added to their faith. And that goes back to what I say again and again and again during these studies. If you can lose your salvation, and he knows this as well, you will. If you can lose your salvation tomorrow 
or the next day or the next day or five minutes before you die, 52 years from now, it was never of grace, ever. Because you had to do something to earn that salvation. It is grace, okay? And we need to hold fast to that. One more time, must be applied to or added to their faith. It is faith plus nothing. And if you say, well, he can't be a Christian because he's doing all these things when he has made a profession for Christ, I'm sorry, you have missed the change in him. It doesn't matter if he's not acting it because people have addictions they cannot get through. For whatever reason, okay, that is something they need to work on with the Lord. And maybe they're not you know, properly trained in it. Maybe they've been told by a, a counselor or something that is contrary. Until you learn the word, you don't know the word. That's why we have discipleship after coming to, to faith, but faith is what saves and nothing else. Okay, uh, he next speaks of this faith as being grounded and settled. Done and done. The grounding is in what the faith is directed to, which is the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. That is the grounding. That is the grounding of our faith, Jesus Christ. That which is settled is based on the grounding. The Greek word comes from a root which means a seat. The idea is that we are seated on the foundation and are thus immovable. Our faith is what sets us firmly and fixedly in this manner. Faith, nothing else. We cannot add something to the gospel without damaging the gospel. We cannot add to the word in a prophecy or in anything else without damaging that prophecy or whatever else we're talking about. It has to be the word of God, okay? So we are seated, and that comes from the word, I'm sure Paul was thinking of it, the word shevet in Hebrew, okay, which means to sit, to dwell, to abide. And interestingly enough, the word shevet is spelled exactly the same as Shabbat or Sabbath. Okay, there's just no vowel pointings. So that'll take you, let me take you so that you can kind of see what I'm getting at here. I think I even quote this in a sermon coming up pretty soon, but uh, Psalm 133. Now, I'm not saying that this is correct. I'm just saying that if you take the connection in this Psalm, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It means to sit, to sit together in unity. Well, now think of it Without the vowel points, it's just the word, the shin, bait, I think taf are the three letters. Behold it, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to Sabbath together in unity. Think of the final Sabbath rest that we lost at the very beginning. And we are going into a rest. We who believe do enter that rest, Hebrews 4.3. So, once again, to sit and to Sabbath is a very close connection in the Hebrew. So not only are we sitting together in unity right now, hopefully, okay, we're, we're learning the word of God together, we're sitting together, and we're dwelling in unity. We're also, because we have believed in Jesus, we have entered our Sabbath, our rest. And so one more time, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to Sabbath in unity. Okay, the only reason why we have the difference between Sabbath and sit in that verse is because that's how the Masoretes had pointed it. They pointed it as dwell together in unity, and then, but now listen to the rest of the psalm. It's very short. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. 
for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, what is life forevermore? It's entering into God's rest. So did the Masoretes point it properly? Probably, but even if they didn't, the word is so closely connected to Sabbath or that final rest of God. It's marvelous. Just think of that. So that's probably what Paul is thinking of. We're sitting on the foundation, which is Christ. Okay, so now we can go back. And I don't want you to put that in your head and say that that's what that psalm should be saying. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that could possibly be because it's the same wording. It's just a different pointing of the vowels. Okay, and that was Sergio who called me one day or messaged me or something. And he said, you know, I was reading this and without the vowel points, it just says we're Sabbathing together. Then I'm like, isn't that interesting? I've always carried that with me because they're so closely connected in thought that it's just a, a nice sensation to think through. Okay, um, we're sitting, uh, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. It's settled. It's uh, Our faith is what set us firmly and fixedly in this manner. Our faith, Christ is the foundation. We sit on the foundation. Okay, in this position, he then says, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Because of our faith, which is grounded and fixed, we will not be so moved away. His words, again, are not words of doubt, but of reassurance. The words went out, they were received, and it is these words which have grounded us. That's it. That is the process of salvation. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul proclaims. The gospel is not anything other than that Christ died for our sins, he was buried according to scripture, he rose again according to scripture. According to scripture goes in there somewhere, okay, on the third day it says. Okay, somebody emailed me a while ago and he, he was causing some trouble on the uh, live stream and so uh, people shut him down. Then he emailed me afterward and he, he said some things and come to find out he's just got this terrible theology, but um, he was fixated on where is it in the Old Testament where uh, it says that Christ would be raised on the third day because Paul says according to scripture. And I said that the according to scripture is that he would be raised, okay? The third day is just, and how do we know that's correct? That he's not focusing on the third day, he's focusing on Christ coming out the grave. It's because elsewhere Paul gives the gospel such as in Romans 10, 9 and 10, and he says nothing about the third day. Okay, so the focus is on the act of resurrection. He just acknowledged that it was on the third day, which matches everybody else's testimony because Paul wasn't there with the other apostles. He's confirming what Peter claims. Okay, but it actually is recorded in scripture in typology. Does anybody know where? Because uh, typology? No. Well, Jonah is uh, it's, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and it, that can be taken differently, okay? We can talk about that sometime. It's a little bit of a, uh, I, I've got the timeline of Jesus' resurrection, and people say that he had to be in the grave for 72 hours. It had to be three days and three nights, or it's not a fulfillment of the prophecy. That's not correct, and I'm not going to get into it now. I've got it all typed out on the timeline of Jesus' Passion Week. It is very clear, very clear that he raised on the third day, not after three days, okay? That's very clear. Scripture gives no other possibility of that. The timeline is given, and the three days and three nights is also repeated Didn't in one... We, wait, wait, let me finish what I'm saying. There, they, uh, There's one other time in Scripture where that same phrase is used. 
It is in the book of Esther. And it's clearly not three days and three nights. Okay, it is an idiom that Christ was using from the book of Esther. Yes. Didn't we cover something like that just recently? In, I don't in know. Jonah? Uh, uh, or not Jonah, but um, in uh, uh, Joshua. It's possible. I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I cover it so often because right, right. people bring it up every single Easter or Resurrection Day or whatever you want to call it. People bring it up and they argue their side of the, and they're wrong. He was, the, the uh, crucifixion was not on a Wednesday and it was not on a Thursday. It was on a Friday. Scripture gives no other possibility than that. But I will tell you where the three days explicitly is said, but in typology. Okay, this is typology, and typology is a way of conveying a message. Everybody got that? So if something is properly handled from typology, and yes, people take typology and they make it say anything, and you can't do that, but if you were properly evaluating typology, you go to, um, let's see here, um, where is it? Um, uh, it's right in here. It's in Genesis 22, and it says that, um, that, 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 that he himself laid out the wood. Um, God tested Abraham, rode his donkey. Uh, he split the wood. Stay here, and I will go and yonder. Three and, yeah, three days. And, and it, three days. yeah, it, it's exactly the typology that we need. Okay, and it says the third day. Okay, so we have the typology of Isaac dying, which is confirmed in the book of. Hebrews, because it says he, in a sense, brought him back. Okay, so he died and he was resurrected. So we have, Isaac had the wood on his back. He carried it up the hill. Christ carried his cross. All the typology is there. It's all we need. So there is a third day in the Old Testament if you need it. But that is not what Paul is focusing on. Paul is focusing on the resurrection itself because the gospel, as I said, is repeated elsewhere, and he does not say the third day. If it was necessary for us to believe it was on the third day, then it would be in every gospel presentation. It's not. And I know that's a bit of a diversion, but it's something that people can work on. Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Um, where was I? The Greek words, of, see, okay, yes, and his words are not words of doubt, but of reassurance. The words went out, they were received, and it is these words which have grounded us. Nothing needs to be added to them in order for our hope to be realized. But then Paul says that the gospel was, here it is, was preached to every creature under heaven. His words are, and a lot of people have a big problem with this. They have a big problem with this. Okay, I hope I addressed, this is what I was kind of concerned. I might not have adequately expressed it, and we'll find out in a minute. But um, his words are given with the time reference of was to indicate that which is ideal. Good, I'm glad I said this, not actual. Okay, everybody got that? When he says was, it does not mean that it has actually happened. It is ideal, it is not actual. In other words, what did Paul continue to do after he wrote this letter? He continued to share the, gospel. To share the gospel with people who had not heard the gospel. Everybody got that? This is an ideal set forth. This is not actual. Everybody got that? It would be like saying, well, we do it all the time when we give sermons. You know, it, not my type of sermons, but, you know, the, the pastors that stand up there and they'll say something in the superlative. And they're saying everything when obviously not everything. God has reconciled all things to himself, and then he goes into some tangent and he says, blah, blah, blah. And actually it hasn't happened yet. But in his mind that he is conveying to you, it has happened because it is going to happen. That's what's going on here. Okay, his words are given with the time reference of was.
to indicate that which is ideal, not actual. In other words, the gospel was effectively proclaimed, here it is from Cambridge, when the Savior, in his accomplished victory, bade it be done. That's in Mark 16, 15. Let me read you what they are citing there. Mark 16, 15. And there, hang on, 14, 15, and 16. We're getting there quickly. Okay, it says, um, uh, uh, they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes is baptized and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so he's given the command. The work is finished by Christ, and now all we have to do is go out and actualize what he has told them to do. Okay, and to this day, obviously not all creatures have heard because new people are being born all the time. It's an ideal set forth by Paul. That is what is being spoken of. I'm going to stop right there, and somebody will email me if I don't say this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Does that mean that if you're not baptized, I'm talking about water baptism, you will not be saved? Because that's what the Church of Christ teaches based on this verse. That does not mean that at all. Think it through. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. So baptism is conditional on Being believing. In other words, he's not speaking about water baptism there. He's speaking about being baptized into Christ. Okay, and that is confirmed elsewhere in the epistles, like in last week's sermon. Was it last week's or the week before? Where Anyway, uh, what sermon are we doing this week? Okay, it was last week's where I talked about baptism into Christ. Okay, um, so um, uh, that is what that means. It does not mean that if you are not baptized in the church of Christ, you are going to hell because that's what they tell people, just so you know. The... Baptism is conditional on the belief. If you don't believe, then you will not be baptized. In other words, you will not have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what that means. It does not mean water baptism and, and etc. However, baptism is a blank of the Lord. Uh, command. It is. It, it, did you say that? Okay, because his chair was creaking when you is said it a that. Command? What? It, it, it's it's a, a command. It's a, it's, he said, "Do it." That is a command. When yeah. Jesus speaks, okay. we do. Okay. He said. Go out and do these things, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's not speaking about uh, the Spirit baptism. Why do we know that? Because he's telling it to his disciples, and his disciples do not do that. The Holy Spirit does that. So it is a command from the Lord. He gave us two commands. He gave us the Lord's Supper, and he gave us baptism. Those are the only two ordinances that he has given. That does not mean that if you disobey it, you're not going to heaven because people disobey Jesus all day, every day, and they're saved. Yes? Teaching them to observe what I command. That's right. That's right. Teaching them. This is his word. He is our Lord. He is giving us his instruction. Unlike the law, however, when we don't do these things, we are not imputed sin. Because if we were under the law, we would be imputed sin and we would lose our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.19 is an important verse to remember. We are not having our sins counted against us. We are having rewards and losses reckoned towards our account. That is what is happening. Okay, Important, important theology to understand. Okay, um, Yes, so uh, it, it, this is an ideal set forth. I'll read it again, what Cambridge said. When the Savior, in his accomplished victory, bade it to be done. 
we're to do that thing, okay? So um, this is 123, what page is that? Why do I have page 41 down here? I see, I'm laying there. Okay, so in other words, when Christ said that the gospel was to be preached to every creature, it was effectively done at that time. Okay, that is what Paul is conveying to us. The commission was given and it will meet its intended goals. Nothing can thwart the purposes for which it is intended. Nothing. Christ will have the end say in all things. Okay, this is certain because the words every creature are not limited to human beings, but to all scope of creation. Okay, everything will be reconciled by Jesus Christ. Everything will be brought back to the state that it should be in. And as I said a couple weeks ago, it is not a failure when people do not accept the gospel because God's righteousness is revealed in salvation and in condemnation, okay? People that are condemned, God is vindicated in that as well, okay? It goes both ways. He's given the offer. If we don't accept the gospel, whose fault is it? God's? Absolutely not. We're condemned already according to Jesus. We're already condemned. So for us to refuse the gospel because we're in a state of condemnation means that we just continue on in our state of condemnation. Right, and and, and it was, okay, I lost my thought there because I thought I was going to interrupt what you were doing, but um, he'll give you lovingly what you asked for. That's right. So it's not like he's like, oh, you're condemned. It's like, you want to be condemned? Great. I've offered my it. son. Right. Your default position is already where you exist. Mm -hmm. You're the one that has to make the choice to come out of that. And that's why I say what the guy J.P. Spears, oh, he's so funny. You ought to watch some of his videos. They're always very funny. It's just a comedy, and he does a good job. But right now, as I said in my email to my friend, he is his own worst enemy right now because he thinks that he's got it figured out. And without Jesus, nothing is figured out. Nothing. We must have Jesus in our life. That is the that is the key and nothing else. We are not our own saviors. Our hearts do not have the ability to bring us to a right state with God. Only Christ can do that. You got something? Yes. I knew you did because you're, you're, you're pulling on your throat. And I said, that Burke has got something good. Romans 8.21. For the creation itself. Yes. Wants to be set free. That's right. Creation he itself. Said it wasn't just for us. So that, that, All of creation. That's that's exactly the verse that he's probably thinking of right there. That's exactly right. The cre and I might cite that. I do not. So I'm glad you brought that in because that is exactly right. The entire creation has fallen because man fell. It is in a state of imperfection. And until, you know, I, I see this all the time and I have to hold myself. I have to check myself. I'm looking at a, um, uh, a mail online today and they had an article, Kiss of Death. And they liked it. They're very, very morbid on mail online. They're Brits, okay? They're morbid. All right. So I'm kidding, British people. I, I just, they're very morbid in mail online. And here's a zebra going across a river with a bunch of other zebras. And one of them has got its neck being eaten by a crocodile. It's going down for the count. I'm sorry, it's done. So, um, and at the same time as saying, oh, that poor zebra, I have to say, well, that crocodile has to eat too, yeah. okay? Everything yeah. is in a state of, I, I will say this, everything gets eaten, yeah. everything. There's nothing that doesn't get eaten, okay? When these lefties come out and they say, well, it's not right to eat animals, everything gets eaten. Everything is going to die 
And even if the animal doesn't get eaten while it's alive, as soon as it dies, it's going to be eaten. Okay, everything. Nothing, nothing is, and I'm talking about life. Nothing in life is exempt from being eaten. And so it's a wrong thinking to say that it's wrong to eat animals because it is what God has ordained for us. Okay, he's the one that decided this. And it's very hard to see an animal that you love suffer or but listen, that is what God has ordained for all things. Until things are restored to the way that they should be, we're going to see this. And so as soon as I got feeling bad for that little zebra, I said, well, that crocodile had to eat too, okay? He ain't going to be a crocodile if he doesn't have food. And then the system will become more unbalanced. And the system continues to unbalance because we change it. The humans change it. As I said, I gave this example a while ago, and I love to tell people this, is that out back of the mall that I take care of, and every day I have hundreds and hundreds of birds. They, they come to my dock first, and then they fly all the way. By the time they get there, though, those are just the ibis. They're like, you know, they, they, they come maybe a hundred of them and some crows on my dock every morning, and then seagulls once in a while. But eventually, all the ibis fly up. They follow me down the road, and they land, and they're they're hundreds more birds. I've got, you know, night herons and I've got all kinds of birds and they're just waiting for me every day and I threw out all the food for them. Just 80 or 100 pounds of food I threw out every single day. And these birds are all over. And every year I see mom duck come. She comes every year. I don't know if it's the same duck or if it's just one that grew up. And But here comes these ducks and there's always 10 little ducks behind her, right? And they come and they eat the bread because I'm throwing out a, a lot of bread too. I throw out I throw out pizza. I throw out everything, and in 20 minutes it is gone. Everything, boy. But okay, so here comes mom with her 10 little ducks, and the next day she comes and there's mom with seven little ducks. Okay, and the next day I feel so bad. They're so cute. Here comes mom with five ducks, and every year the same thing happens. Here comes mom with three ducks. They made it to a point where they're not going to be eaten by anything else. And for 6,000 years, ducks have continued to exist because she gave a birth to enough ducks to feed the snake, to feed the other, the osprey that comes in and swoops down and eats one of her babies. She has given birth to enough ducks so that we continue to have ducks to this day. God has planned that. Now, we don't like that an osprey kills a duck. And so we go and kill all the osprey. We're not allowed to do that in Florida, but that's the idea of people. They don't like predators eating little. And so what happens is the system gets out of balance. And then you've got too many ducks and all of a sudden the population explodes and then you have a collapse of the population because humans got in the way, okay? This is the problem of the world. This is what Paul is speaking about, okay? And so here we are, we're going to go back here. This is certain because the words, every creature are not limited to humans, but to all the scope of creation. No, I don't give the birds the gospel out back. I thank the Lord for the birds. I love, some of them are so friendly. They walk up, these night herons, if you've ever seen the night heron, they're very friendly, they're very, but they're very shy around people. They mm. will not come close to you. Night herons, if you know what a night heron is, they they're very, very, it took a long time from and if people come with me those birds will stay away they're very very scared of their circumstances okay but i've got like eight of them that come right around me and they know that i'm going to give them the good food because they only eat meat the ibis will eat anything they'll eat anything you throw out there 
vegetables or what they'll just peck at it but these these night herons will come and I just throw them a little bit of every bit of the meat that's out there and they love it and they're so friendly and I got each one of them has its own little personality they're just unbelievable but if you have a friendly night heron around you it's because you had been putting out food or something right, right. yeah, yeah. It, it took a while and they I mean, didn't just it, come it up gets to you crazy it's like they're we have that landing right yes. outside of our slider it'll wait on the railing of the, the slide and you open it up and it's like there okay, he is i can touch you right now i could I just to, but yeah like, no here's the stuff and it's funny they they don't know how to handle bread but it's like a last ditch oh yeah they i'd rather have a fish but i'll eat this and, and yeah well they won't with me they, they know they're getting meat <laughs> and they won't touch anything else but i gotta tell you they uh uh, they are part of the creation, and every once in a while, it breaks my heart. One will come in, he'll have a broken leg, and I'll say, I won't be seeing him very much longer. So I always throw him the most, because I want him to have a nice, happy death. So anyway, but uh, yeah, it's very sad, because, you know, whatever. Okay, so every creature, through the gospel, all things will be reconciled, even those things to which the gospel was not actually preached. But the proclamation is that this is to be done it is itself sufficient to ensure that it will be accomplished. It will come to pass. Finally, he concludes with, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This phrase is used by him in Ephesians 3, verse 7 also. Let me read that to you just because we're writing Ephesians right now. Anyway, 3, 7, he says, um, uh, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So there you go, Ephesians 3, 7. He has made an emphasis of the gospel being the true and reliable message of God, which comes through the work of Christ. It is the only true message of re reconciliation among all of the countless false gospels which have been proclaimed. And when I say false gospels in this sense, I'm not speaking about false Christian gospels because a gospel is my reconciliation to God. That is a gospel. Buddha came up with a gospel. This is how you can be one with the divine, okay? Krishna, the Hindus follow Krishna and all of these other gods. That is their gospel. That is their reconciliation with the divine, okay? Islam has their gospel. They have a supposed, you know, a revelation from uh, the angel Gabriel through Muhammad, and that's what they follow, okay? That is their gospel. There are gospels all over the world that we wouldn't think of as a gospel, but the gospel is the good news. God is separate from us, and we are going to have reconciliation. The people down in Peru and Mexico, they had their own gospel. Kill a virgin on top of this uh, pyramid and let her blood run all the way down the pyramid, and God is going to see that, and he's going to give us rains, and he's going to be happy with us. They're looking for happiness, or what's the word happiness? What's the, the word we use? begins with pro and ends with Propitiation, yeah, propitiation, okay. So uh, it's to make a propitious or a happy relationship with God, all right? That's what people are doing. They are writing their own gospel. They're acting out their own gospel, whatever it is. And then comes Christianity, and we have all these different people coming up with their own gospel, which is not another gospel, even at the time of Paul. How much more 2,000 years later when we got people all over the world Everybody is a specialist in theology except the preacher in the church. I can assure you of that. Everybody knows better than he does. That's the way it is. Everybody knows how to reconcile with God. That's okay. You can feel that way as long as Jesus is the answer. 
If it's anything else, then it is a false gospel. Jesus Christ is the answer to man's problem. Read it again. It is the only true message of reconciliation among all of the countless false gospels which have been proclaimed. The gospel of Christ. He died for your sins. You're a sinner. He was buried. He was really dead. He took your sins into the grave. He rose again. Your sins are gone. Propitiation is realized. And you now have that happy relationship with God. He rose again. That is the gospel. There is no other. And we've talked about that how many times in the past 10 years that logically, if you logically think it through, there can be no other way. Because who is Jesus? He's God. God. There is no other way to find that reconciliation because a man must die for the sins of man. A perfect man. A perfect man. And Jesus Christ is man, but he is also God. And that is the answer. There is no other way. And there can only be one God-man. There can't be two or 10 or 25. There is one Jesus Christ. That's why he's the whole, everything in all of human creation centers around Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not. This book sets the the timetable for everybody's lives on this planet. Everybody lives by a seven-day week. Everybody. And if they don't, it's because they are out of whack, which happens, of course. But everybody lives by the timetable that was set in this book. Everybody lives by the idea that was first set in this book. It's the deviations from it which cause all of these other religions to come about. But they keep following the same pattern in one way or another, realizing that there is this disconnect. Jesus is the answer to that. You got something. Go ahead. Read Hebrews 2, second chapter 1 and 2. Uh, Yes, that's a very good one. Hebrews 2, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression, he's speaking about the law of Moses here, folks, uh, uh, steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape, verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and which was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Jesus. More earnest heed. Pay attention to this word. Now, he's speaking to the Hebrew people. He's speaking about them as a nation. Okay, he's already spoken to them as individuals. And he says that we who have believed individuals do enter that rest. And now he goes on and he speaks about the collective nature of Israel. Okay, and what happens when they turn their back on the Lord, etc. So it's a book you have to be really, really careful with. Very careful with the book of Hebrews. But it is, uh, though it is written to the Hebrews, it is also applicable, many of its precepts, to us as well. Because the same Christ that was revealed in the typology of Exodus and the building of the ark is the same Christ that died for us. He is our what, according to Paul in Corinthians. He is our Passover lamb is sacrificed, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, okay? He is the typology. He's the fulfillment of all of it, and that applies to us. He's writing that to Gentiles, and yet he says, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us, okay? So even though we were not under the law as Gentiles, it still applies to us because it was typologically anticipating Jesus, the one to free us from all of these bonds, okay? So, um, 
all things will be reconciled, uh, Ephesians 3, 7. Yeah, he has made an emphasis of the gospel being the true and reliable message of God, which comes through the work of Christ. It is the only true message of reconciliation among all of the countless false gospels which, is, which have been proclaimed. In stating that he has become a minister of this gospel, he is asserting that his commission is valid and it is authentic. Any message by an evangelist or apostle that contradicts his words is thus a false message. And guess what? Peter was called on the carpet in Galatians chapter 2 because he was presenting a false gospel. Yes, Peter. And so Paul had to correct him because he was withdrawing from the Gentiles and he was falling into a works-based presentation of the gospel, okay? And so that doesn't mean Peter wasn't saved. It means that Peter was not strong-willed and he needed to be corrected by another apostle. What Paul said, and Peter took it to heart, and years later he said that what Paul says is scripture. It gets twisted by people, but it is the word of God. Okay, life application. There are nuances in the Bible which are intended to keep us from error. If we simply assume that the English translation we are reading is correct, we can easily fall into error. Okay, a lot of people do that with one particular version of the Bible. And every single, the first thing I do every single day, the first thing when I start to type a new commentary is I take the Greek in the morning and I line it up with the King James Version and I find out where the errors are and I continue to document them in my Acts commentary. And every single verse that I analyze on Monday morning for the coming sermon, the first thing I do with that verse before I do anything else is I compare it to the King James Version and I highlight the errors and I document them in the Joshua book. And then I, once in a while, when I have a couple hundred of them, I post them to the main thing, which is now thousands of errors long. And the reason why I do this isn't just to pick on the King James Version, which is fun, but the main reason why I continue to do this is because I learn, I'll bet you, more theology from doing that 10 minutes or 15 minutes on each verse. Say I do 20 verses, well, that's, uh, what's that, 150 minutes? It's a lot, lot of work. I could just skip that and save a lot of time on Monday. I learn more from doing that than I do from anything else that I do on Monday. I learn more from comparing a wrong translation than I do from reading commentaries about that translation. It is invaluable. I've come to the point where I do not want to do without that. And if I didn't have a King James Version, I'd do it with another version of the Bible just to learn the theology of that verse. Because I don't just take the, oh, that's a verb and blah, blah, blah. I go back and I look at what the word, each word is for, what it means, what its etymology is. And I learn more from that one act, every single verse, than I do on anything else. I love doing that now. And it all started trying to poke at a group of people that are in a cult, okay? But it's proven to be a very effective way of learning scripture for me. Very effective, the most effective. Anyway, um, it's like um, we're talking about uh, effectiveness and uh, Jody here had on last Saturday said, listen, I've got a real problem. I gotta teach kids that don't know any English. They're from Thailand, I gotta teach them English. I don't know what to do. And I said, I can tell you, I tried everything with the Korean church. I tried everything. I got all the Korean to English books. I got, I tried everything. I spent a lot of money getting ready and preparing things and oh, this is, you know, these are done by specialists. It's going to be easy. And those kids didn't learn doodly squat. Okay, that's from uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, doodly squat. Okay, anyway, um, I uh, uh, finally 
something just dawned on me one day. I said, the reason why we have such a difficult time understanding other people of other languages is because we don't know what the, the meaning of their phrases is. In other words, the word is idiom. Everybody uses idioms and they do it all the time and they just do it without even thinking about it. And I started to only teach them idioms. That's all I did. And those kids learned English so quickly and so well, I was astonished. Now she's got a little bit of a withdrawal, uh, a little bit of a problem there because they don't speak any English at all. So she's got to go each word to get them to the point where they can start learning idioms. But once they do that, they will go to class and they'll hear their friends speaking and they'll know that they're hearing words, but they have no idea what those words mean because there's a meaning, an underlying meaning that we use that makes no sense. Right. You learn idioms and you will learn a language. And that's how when Sergio, when we became friends at first and his English was just weird. It was weird. And here he lived in America, he, he worked at a company, but because he didn't understand the basis of the idiomatic expressions we use, and so what I did is I just started sending him idioms. And then pretty soon he was sending me idioms. He was having so much fun learning English. And now his language, he understands everything we say. Well, but there, for be there, be there, square. Be square. Well, he, he, he's pushing our buttons with that. He's not a dummy. He's, he's pushing our buttons with that. There's no doubt. He's having fun doing that. But yes, he knows that idiom perfectly. Okay, he does now. He might not have when we started, but now he's just pushing everybody's buttons because he's a button pusher. You don't know about Sergio, but he'll push your buttons. Um, uh, the only person on this planet I think he won't push the buttons of is his wife. He uh, takes care of her like no person I've ever seen in my that's ever, ever. Unbelievable. Still alive. He must well, he's still alive. That's right. Okay, so um, this is especially so even in the English. There may be several ways of interpreting what is being said. However, the same is true with the original languages. Therefore, and this is what I was just getting to, I was talking about, and here it is, a careful study of scripture with other passages in scripture is often needed to fully understand what is being conveyed. Okay, but not only, uh, not only understanding scripture with scripture, which is Martin Luther said, scripture with scripture, and that's how you interpret it, and that is correct, but to understand what is being conveyed in the original language. That's not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary for understanding the Trinity. None of that. But to understand the nuances of what is being said, I can tell you, I can absolutely assure you that sitting there and studying each single verse and every word of that verse that you are unfamiliar with will give you an understanding like we had with, you know, what was the word sitting that Paul used. And it went back and looked at the Hebrew word and how that ties in with another word. Understanding those connections will help you. Once again, though, you don't want to make illogical jumps. And a lot of people do this, especially with typology, and they come up with incorrect typology. Okay? That's why I do not read other people's ideas about, like, these Joshua sermons. I don't do that. I will read the commentaries of the people that are analyzing the mechanics of what is being said but all of their stuff about, well, this points to Jesus in this way and that, I don't need to see that because that will bias me in a way that I don't want to be biased, okay? If I don't understand what is being said, I'll study it some more. And I type the first half, actually a little more than the first half of Joshua 9 on Monday. And I'm going to be frank with you right now, even though I'm Charlie, I'll be frank right now, yeah. is that I have Still no idea what the first half of 
chapter 9 is saying. And if next week I don't get it, I'm going to be without an answer to the typology. And I don't want that to happen. But I, I have read it again and again and again over the past, every morning and every night. And I think about it all day. I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to think through what is the Lord telling us. But I am not going to make up something if it doesn't fit. I'm not going to do that. So either it fits or it doesn't, and then you'll get a sermon that's just mechanically understood. You're going to get that, and that's fine. I've done that before because I don't want to make stuff up. But it's a little bit complicated what's going on in chapter 9, and uh, uh, so we'll see. Next week we'll finish up the sermon, and then I have to sit down and say pictures of Christ or make something up just to make you feel good about the passage you heard. But I'm not going to make up a wrong typological presentation. That's not going to happen. Okay, if one verse assures the believer of eternal salvation and another seems to imply this is not so, then one or the other must be misunderstood. Everybody got that? Either salvation is eternal or it is not. There are not both options available in Scripture. Either you are saved and then saved forever, or you are saved and then you can lose your salvation. If one verse seems to say something different than the other, there's a problem in your understanding of what is being conveyed in one verse or the other because the salvation is not both eternal and not eternal. It is one or the other. And so you have to come to the resolution of first checking it out and then if you don't understand it, you're the one that has to say, well, you know, I don't know and I'm just going to have to keep studying this. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, all I can tell you is that I have never come across a verse that indicates a loss of eternal salvation when it's properly analyzed. There, it, you're not going to find it because Paul is very clear that salvation is eternal. You just have to sit down and you have to knuckle down and you have to try to figure it out because the word can be figured out. It's difficult. It's time-consuming. It is mentally exhausting. You know that. I bet you spend 10 hours a day in the word. It, it, it's tiring, isn't it? I mean, it's, you do these studies and you, you're just like, I'm beat. You're just dead by the end of the day. If one verse assures the believer of eternal salvation and another seems to imply it's not so, then one or the other must be misunderstood. Study and contemplate the words of Scripture carefully. Don't get stuck on a single translation of the word and don't trust only one commentator's views on what is being said. Be well-rounded in your study of this precious word. And I will go beyond that. And, I, you know, this wonderful, nice lady's been emailing me for the past week about, you know, things. And she had questions about disparities between versions of the Bible. And, and uh, uh, I, we talk, we've talked about it. And every time she comes back and she says, I'm so happy to know this. And the one thing that I said that I say to everybody is get a Bible with footnotes footnotes because that's going to tell you why there are these disparities. Here's a good example. We've only got five minutes, so I can't yeah, go into another verse another anyway. <laughs> but I will tell you this, is that um, everybody, you know, has their opinion on Isaiah 14, okay? Isaiah 14. It is speaking of Lucifer. And so it's speaking of the devil, and Isaiah 14 is about the devil. I'm sorry, Isaiah 14 is not about the devil. Now, there may be hints of him in there that you can pull out, whatever, uh, but that's fine. But the context is clear. It's speaking about the king of Babylon, okay? And one of the things that the King James Version did is they 
translated the word. The reason why this came up is because she said, well, it says in Revelation that Jesus is called the son of the dawn or the son of the morning, depending on the translation, right? And that's what some translations say. So they're saying that Satan and Jesus are the same, and so that's a bad translation. That's not correct at all. The Hebrew actually says, son of the morning, shining one of the morning. Okay, so now you have to know what's going on. They put in the word Lucifer. Where does Lucifer come from? Does anybody know where that word comes from? It's not Hebrew. It's a Latin word. It's Latin, just like Calvary in Luke is a Latin word. They decide to put a Latin word in there. And so her question was, well, then why didn't they italicize that? Because it's not an inserted word, it's a translated word. But they chose a Latin word, which means not Satan, it means shining one. That's all it means. It's a Latin word meaning shining one. But that confuses things because people have associated Lucifer with Satan. And so all of a sudden, you've got this, this cult of thinking out there that says that this is speaking of Satan in here. It says that this person that's being addressed is going to go to the pit, Sheol. Is Satan ever going to die? Yes. No, no, Satan is not going to die. He's going to burn forever and ever and ever. Sheol is not hell, as we call it. And even hell isn't hell, because the word hell is the Old Testament way of saying Hades, the, the Old English way. It doesn't mean the lake of fire. The lake of fire is one thing. Hell is another, which is equated to Sheol in the Old Testament, but it's not the hell that we think of today. So you've got to be careful with the word hell when you're talking about the Bible. Satan is not going into the pit. He's not going to be slain and go into the pit. Isaiah 14 is not speaking about Satan. Like I said, you might be able to find a hint of him in there, or whatever, if that's what you want to do, but that's not what it's referring to. So always read the footnotes perfect timing too. Always read the footnotes. Always try to understand why things are the way they are. When you see the word Lucifer or when you see the word Calvary, you can ask somebody someday, why did you put a Latin word in that verse? I don't know why they did it. It doesn't make any sense because if they just translated it properly, we wouldn't have these problems with theology with people. But they did. And then another version comes along and rightly translates it. And all of a sudden, that's the enemy. It's not the enemy. He just translated it the way it's supposed to be. Okay? So, Hillel ben Shahar, I think is the word, which is, um, uh, anyway, son of, uh, shining one son of the morning, the dawning. Shining one son of the dawning. Okay? That's what it says. Okay? You can translate it a little bit differently depending on the translation, but putting in Lucifer there, I don't know why they did that, but they've caused all kinds of sensationalism for people over the years, and people love sensationalism. If I was to do a video on Lucifer of Isaiah 14 and make up all the stuff that people make up, I guarantee you I would have five million hits, okay? And I'd be getting a check every week from YouTube. That doesn't interest me. That's not responsible. That's not what the Bible is conveying to us. So be responsible with your theology. Try to not watch these crazy videos that people put out. I understand that sensation is mind tickling, but it doesn't edify anything, okay? Stick with the word. The word is sensational enough all by itself. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful word. It is so precious. It is just a great delight. It's, it's so filled with Jesus. It's so filled with the redemption of despicable beings like us that you chose to favor even in our state of, of sin 
You pulled us out of that. You've washed us. You've cleansed us. And even then, we continue to fail you. Help us, Lord, to just be obedient to you with our hearts, with our minds, and with our lives. To follow you, to endure through these difficult times, to help others along the path, and to just be lights to this world that is just so far from you. Help us to do this and be responsible with our lives. To your glory, we pray this. Amen. All right, let's back this up. And... We're going to go to break.